Well, hey, good morning. How you guys doing? Grab your Bibles and turn to Titus 3. Titus 3. We're going to be finishing up a short three-week series that we started two weeks ago called Blueprint for a Healthy Church. And um, I am fired up for Easter, aren't you? But before we get to Easter, I got to get through Titus 3, and I'll give you a little bit of my feelings about the passage that we're going to uh, be looking at this morning. Uh, yesterday, I woke up early. Uh, this sermon was on my mind. I preached last night. Um, I'm old. I think the clock said four something. And uh, Kristen got up a little bit later. I went back into the bedroom. She says, how's sermon prep going? And I said, if delivering a sermon were like delivering a baby, this sermon's coming out breach. And, 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 and as I said those words, <laughs> you ever have one of those moments where you're like, what I just said is going to be really offensive? Have you, ever, have you ever had that moment? So I'm saying, I don't think women like it when men compare anything to labor. Would you agree with that, moms? So as I said this, I knew that this was going to be offensive to my wife. So I'm like, that was probably offensive. That's probably something I shouldn't say tomorrow. And, and she looked at me and she's like, oh, no, no, you said way worse. And I don't think that's a real endorsement. I think that's more of an accusation. But I'm going to act like she just gave me permission to say what I said. So if you're offended and feel compelled to write an email, um, send it to Kristen at underthebus.com. It'll get to me, okay? Um, I, I, do I have your attention yet? Okay. Uh, this is a difficult passage for us to look at, and it has nothing to do with the instruction. The, the instruction is, is straightforward. It, it's not complicated. It's not um, deep concepts or hard to follow. The problem with teaching Titus 3 is timing. It's all about timing. And the subject matter in Titus 3 would have been so much better easier, would have been better to teach in 2019 than it is in 2021. It would have been better before 2020 rather than after 2020 because our world is quickly changing and some of the subject matter that I have to address, um, there's strong opinions on it in the room. Um, opinions are entrenched Attitudes and arguments are already articulated. And, and that makes teaching Titus 3 difficult because we're bringing preconceived arguments and entrenchments and having to submit them to God's word. And I would just say, even as I studied this week, I'm like, boy, I wish I would have dug into this particular passage a little bit deeper before 2020 came because it might have changed some of the attitudes that I've had over the course of the last year, some of the responses in ways that I have um, responded to the events of the last year. But our world's quickly changing, would you agree? Let me just point out some things from this last week to give you some idea of some of the things that we're seeing rapidly um, develop within our culture. On Tuesday of last week, USA Today published an article, and it was entitled, Oral Roberts University Isn't the Feel-Good March Madness Story We Need. And if you're not a NCAA basketball fan, or if your brackets were busted last weekend, you might not realize that Oral Roberts is kind of a Cinderella story. It made it to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament, and what this article was 
focusing on was the fact that in Oral Robert University's student handbook, the argument, the, the, the author of the editorial opinion published in USA Today is arguing that more than just celebrating their basketball team, we look, need to look and examine the underlying beliefs held by the university and what their students uphold in their student handbook. The suggestion was made that they should not be allowed to participate in the NCAA tournament, and I quote, the article says, the university's deeply bigoted anti-LGBTQ policies can't and shouldn't be ignored. And it goes on to say, now as Oral Roberts gains national attention, the focus shouldn't be just on their very good men's basketball team, but on their hateful, prejudiced teachings and moral regressiveness. The article implies that if you hold biblical worldviews as it relates to gender and marriage, that you are hateful, that you are prejudiced, and you are morally regressive. And don't kid yourselves, Oral Roberts University isn't the only target of this kind of viewpoint. Last week, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem, she rejected a bill that she had previously tweeted she was excited to sign. The purpose of the bill was to limit um, girls and women's athletics to biological girls and women's, to not allow transgender girls and women's to participate in female athletics because it gave them a competitive advantage and it actually hurt biological women's opportunities for championships and scholarships. And while she was excited to sign this bill, when it hit her desk, she rejected it. And it created a lot of question, why the reversal? And in explaining why she didn't sign the bill that she said she was excited to sign, she said, pressure from the NCAA. She was confronted with the reality that if she signed this bill that the NCAA might not allow South Dakota universities to participate in national events and they would not be allowed to host national tournaments. And there was also implied pressure by Amazon that they might cancel a fulfillment center that they had promised to put in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So she was under immense pressure to change her viewpoint as it related to this bill. Tolerance used to be this idea that even if we had different agree, uh, viewpoints, worldviews, or opinions on a topic, we could still treat each other with kindness and graciousness. But tolerance is quickly being redefined as agreement, labeling all who disagree as intolerant or bigots. We're no longer allowed to hold differing opinions. Our opinions must be brought into submission to the direction of culture. Recently, we've seen the Equality Act move its way through Congress. It has passed the House. It is now before the Senate. And this bill doesn't just provide anti-discrimination protection for transgender individuals. It, it, the legislation clearly elevates the individual right of human expression above religious freedoms and liberties. So this redefining of tolerance has put pressure on us in so many different ways if you hold to a biblical worldview. Let me just mention a couple. As I've already somewhat referenced, the media is becoming more hostile and disagreeable with anything that resembles a biblical worldview. Many of you are facing family intimidation. 
I've been pastoring here for 10 years, and 10 years ago when I started, it would be rare that I would be in a discussion with somebody in our church that was struggling with some of these issues within their own family. Uh, now that is commonplace. It's nearly every week where you're getting together for Easter or for Christmas or for holidays, and, and it's difficult with your extended families when the aunts and uncles and the nieces and nephews and everyone gets together because there's different points of view. And though there's always been different points of view, there's now a hostility connected to the differences that if you don't applaud the other's choices, it becomes intolerable. It becomes difficult to get along. We're confronted in our culture more and more by functional atheism because religion and these topics have become um, so disruptive, it's caused such conflict. Now what's happening is your religious beliefs to avoid the conflict, don't bring them into the workplace, don't put them out on social media, don't bring them into your classroom. If, if you wanna be religious, that's fine. If you wanna believe these things, that's fine, but keep it constrained within the walls of your church. If you hold a biblical worldview and convictions today, the world is quickly changing. Culture is shifting. It is becoming more problematic. So this past week, uh, last Monday morning, Kristen and I got on a flight out of Grand Rapids. We flew to Phoenix, and we were in Phoenix Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We wanted to get out of the cold and uh, watch some preseason baseball. We're White Sox fans. So we went down, we watched a game on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. You'll be happy to know that on Tuesday, I think the high here was 70, and in Phoenix it was 62 and rainy, so awesome. But we went, we went down and we watched the White Sox play um, at their home stadium, Camelback Stadium, on the first day on Monday. And, and it's nice because when you go and watch the White Sox at their home stadium, they're only slightly outnumbered in fans by the visiting team which was the Giants. Welcome to the life of a White Sox fan. But, but Tuesday they played at Sloan Park, which is the spring training home field of the dreaded Chicago Cubs, our, our crosstown rivals. So going to um, Cubs Stadium has the visiting team dressed in our black White Sox sweatshirts and T-shirts and hoodies and scarves and gloves and hats. Um, we were really outnumbered. Everybody else was in blue. These little cubby bear emblems on everything. It wasn't comfortable. We didn't like it. We weren't the home team. And I think as followers of Jesus Christ, we're starting to have to admit the reality that we always knew, but maybe somehow ignored. Within our culture, the followers of Jesus Christ are not the home team. We're just visitors. And it's becoming more and more difficult as our culture is shifting. People who study evangelical movements and what's going on in our country, they would say that we live in unprecedented times. And while I believe that that might be true in our lifetime, that things are different um, than they've ever been before, please understand that in the history of the church, this is nothing new. If you were to look in the book of Acts, Acts is a, uh, a book that covers the history of the spread of the gospel and the development of the early church. 
And the church is formed actually at the end of chapter 2 in Acts. Acts 2 tells the story of Pentecost. Paul preaches the message at Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem. Um, Thousands come to know Christ as a result of that message. And the church is formed at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 3, the gospel flourishes. It goes forward. Peter continues to preach. And more are coming to Christ. The gospel is spreading rapidly. The church is growing in chapters 2 and 3. But by the first verse of chapter 4 in Acts, the church is confronted with resistance, threat, and intimidation. By the time you get one more chapter into the book by chapter 5, now you've got persecution and Peter and the apostles are thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. By the time you get to chapter 6, Stephen uh, uh, is now seized for preaching the gospel. And by the end of chapter 7, Stephen becomes the first martyr. He is stoned to death for his religious beliefs. In history, what we're starting to experience when we faced resistance, threat, and intimidation is absolutely, absolutely nothing new. The fight is coming, make no mistake. And if you think culture is going to get better, if you think political reform is the solution, I would just contend that you're fooling yourselves. What you need to understand as we open the text to Titus 3, Paul is going to give Titus direct instruction on how the church is to engage is to engage with culture. But what you also need to understand is as he gives this instruction, Rome is the world power. And what's going on as Paul gives this instruction is full-blown persecution against the early church. A, a, a Caesar by the name of Nero is now rising to power. And what's happening under Nero is Christians are being led to Rome captive and in sport are being fed before crowds to lions for entertainment. Christians are being... Um, covered in pitch and lit on fire and used his human candles to light Roman garden parties. Uh, followers of the early church, it was the movement was called the way. They're being crucified on crosses, lining the roads outside the cities, warning people, don't adopt this worldview. Don't follow this Jesus, this so-called Messiah. So the backdrop here is different where we face resistance this instruction was given in the face of real persecution. And it might surprise you to see what Paul has to say. Look at verse 1 of Titus 3. If you're keeping notes, here's the big idea. We are called to be a light, not swing against the darkness. We are called to be a light, not to swing against the darkness. Um, living out the gospel, it's actually just three quick points. Here's the first one, be gracious. In the face of a Society that is hostile, we're called to be gracious. Verse 1 of Titus 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, up until last year, I, I would argue in our lifetimes, the, the church has never been put in a position where they've had to lay down their liberties or rights in our country due to edict, ordinance. This has been a new experience for us in the last 15 
months because of the pandemic, we've been asked to do things that we would not normally do. And in the face of the things that we've been asked to do and having to close in different things, I feel personally like we've beaten the topic of submission to death. The problem is the first verse in Titus 3 is remind them. You know what that word remind means? It means remind in the Greek. Tell them something that you've already told them. Say it again. And it's interesting, the instruction in Titus 3 is remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities. And then it goes on and lists some other things that would model graciousness. That's the what. The command is to be submissive. But as we compare that command to other scriptures where we are commanded the same thing, you might find it interesting that as you work through the New Testament and you look at, lo at lists that are given describing um, Christian conduct in the face of culture, over and over at the top of that list is submission to governing authorities. You'll find it in uh, Romans 13. You'll find it in 1 Peter 2. You'll find it in uh, 1, Timoth uh, 1 Timothy 2. And you find it here at the beginning of the list again in Titus 3. So, so the what is we're to be submissive. That raises two questions because when you're asked to be submissive to something, that means you automatically disagree. If you agreed with it, it would be consensus. But since it's submission, it implies that you don't agree. And when I don't agree with something that I'm being asked to do, I have about a two-year-old's mentality. What's the first thing that I ask? Why? Well, as we work our way through other passages in Scripture that tell us to be submissive, the why is often included with the what that we are supposed to do. I'm going to give you three whys, okay? I don't have these in my notes, but if you're keeping notes, you might want to write these down. Here's the first why. Why would we choose to be submissive? Because submission reflects our dependence on God. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Romans 12 has just started a dialogue that it says, therefore I urge you, as followers of Jesus Christ, to, to give your lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by this world. That's Romans 13, 1 and 2, loosely translated. And as you move out of that instruction, what does it mean to give ourselves to God, will you get into this instruction? Let every person be subject to governing authorities. That's the what. Okay, why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The what? Submit yourself to governing authorities. The why? Because God is ultimately in control. Hey, here's a question. Who elected Biden president last year? Don't shout that out. It was a rhetorical answer. The people last night were confused and it got interesting, okay? Um, so just, just sit on that because I've got a couple more I want to ask you. Who elected Trump president in 2016? And if your go-to answer is the Democrats or Republicans, you're missing the point. What Romans is saying is your elected officials, though you think you're electing them, they're actually placed into authority by a sovereign God. Who, who elected Governor Whitmer, governor of Michigan? Don't answer. 
Hold it, okay? Hey, who elected Nero and allowed him to rise to the position of Caesar and become the decimator of the church in the first century? In Revelation, who gives Antichrist the authority to rule the world? Who allows Satan today to be called the prince of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4? Please please understand, his followers of Jesus Christ, his believers in the Bible, we are not dualists. We do not believe that there is a battle going on between good and evil, that there are two kings that they're warring and we're chewing on our fingernails and maybe toenails to see who's going to win. We're not dualists. God is on the throne, and Satan only has the authority to do the things that God in his sovereign wisdom and purposes allows. And as believers, we're not going to be rattled by the misconduct of human leaders. We're looking through those human leaders and trusting in a God who is sovereign and for our good. 1 Peter 2 deals directly with how you behave and what we're called to do under leaders who do not have your best interests in mind. 1 Peter 2, verse 13, be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution. That's the what. Whether it be the emperor is supreme or to the governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise who do good. So again, we're to be subject for the Lord's sake for every institution. Why? Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Couple things. What? Be subject. Why? This is the will of God. Hmm, I wonder what we should do when a ruler does this. Well, you're to be subject for this is the will of God. That's God's will. Some of you are saying, how long and when do we rebel? We're going to get there. Take a deep breath, okay? But what I'm saying right now is the will of God is clearly stated as a reason why we submit to human institutions. And verse 15 is also interesting. It says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I am not going to argue people out of their positions. What often gets the attention of a world that is rebelling against all authority, including God's authority, what gets their attention is people that are living gracious lives, that are entrusting in something that is greater than themselves. It's interesting, 1 Peter will go on in verse 20 of chapter 2. It says, but when you do good and suffer for it, that means that you're being treated unfairly. When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing. There's that word, be gracious. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Why is this a gracious thing? Well, here's why. Verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. Two reasons from this text why we choose to submit to the governing authorities that are over us. One, when we do it, we're following our Savior. This might be why Jesus said over and over, take up your cross and follow me, take up your cross and follow me. It's why Paul says in Philippians 1.29, all those who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. And the second thing, we're entrusting ourselves to God. The text says that Jesus continued entrusting himself to a creator who judges justly. So often we cry for justice. We serve a just creator. He's on the throne. He's accomplishing his sovereign purposes through the leadership that he has put in place. 
We're called to submit. It's interesting. So, so I'm sitting at the baseball game on Wednesday. We're back at White Sox Park. Kristen and I are sitting um, between home plate and the third base dugout. We're about 10 rows back. And there's guys two sections over this way. The parks are limited to about 20 to 25% attendance. So it's very weird. It's very quiet. You can hear what everybody's saying. This guy, you couldn't help but hear everything he said because he yelled it full voice. He was sitting behind the third base dugout. It started with the second pitch. Pitch was thrown. The umpire called it a ball. And he started arguing balls and strikes with the umpire. Now, what made this incredibly frustrating to me is he was wearing a White Sox jersey. He was a White Sox fan, probably for sure 50s, maybe 60 years old. And I would just say personally, there, there's an age cut off to when it's appropriate for you to wear a jersey. And I think it's below 50. That's a personal thing, but I'm just saying it, it, there's a point it doesn't look what, right. Your wife should help you with that, okay? But, but what I'm saying is, I'm annoyed by this guy. Every pitch, every check, swing. Come on, Blue. Open your eyes. Wake up. Pay attention. You're horrible. Your family's right. It got personal. Like, he's going after this guy. And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what makes a grown man wake up in the morning, put on a jersey, go to a ballpark to rag on an umpire for three hours? He's sitting behind third base. The umpire is right behind the plate. The pitch is coming right at him. The plate is right there. From this guy's perspective, 60 yards away, when there's a right-handed batter in the box, he can't even see the plate, and he's looking perpendicular at the pitch to the strike zone. Really? You want to argue perspective on every pitch? It's foolishness. And my fear is that sometimes as followers of Jesus Christ, we find ourselves arguing from our perspective, hey, maybe we could just have the humility to admit that <laughs> the creator of the universe, God, the umpire, he's proven he's pretty good. And his perspective is infinitely better than ours. We're entrusting ourselves to a creator who judges justly. Here's a second reason. The first was vertical. The second is horizontal. It's in our best interest to submit. Paul's writing to a young pastor, actually a church planter, Titus, who is establishing a new church in Crete in a culture that is hostile against the gospel. One of the things that Titus has to consider as the shepherd of this flock is he's called to protect them. Paul doesn't want the gospel to be identified with subversion against ruling authorities because it will bring about its own persecution. First Timothy, in his instruction to Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus, he emphasizes the point. He says, first of all, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. So, so submit and pray for your leaders. Why? that you may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Please recognize that in our culture, at every level, there is an anti-authority mindset that is growing, it is pervasive, and it is infecting the church. And just sidebar here, we're not just talking presidents, governors, and Congress. It's going to hit a little closer to home. 
It's, it's local authorities. It's building codes, it's taxes, it's how you run your business, how you conduct yourself in the face of local authorities. Little closer to home, how you drive. (laughs) Sometimes I'm self-conscious when I'm going 80 in the left lane and I whip past somebody and I notice that harvest sticker on the back of their car. And I'm like, whoa, this probably isn't the best move for the pastor to blow their doors off in the left lane. That's not the bigger problem. The problem is, am I be consistent to who God calls me to and being willing to submit myself and leave a uh, peaceful, peaceful life in front of all authorities? It's interesting. You don't hear this passage quoted in this discussion on submission very often, but Ecclesiastes 8, verses 2 through 5. This is written, I believe, by Solomon. He is the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, and he says this. He says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go, into his pre- to go from his presence. Do not take your evil or your stand in an evil cause, for the king does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command of the king will know no evil thing. But what's interesting is what he says four verses later in verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart and all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So, so what Solomon is saying is he's saying, listen, obey the king, but you need to know something. What I've been able to observe over my lifetime with all of my wisdom is if you give somebody power, they're probably going to oppress the people they have power over. Human nature. I think we need to understand that when someone's put into authority, the expectation is not that they're always going to be just and fair. I, I've never been involved in, in my business background or in my um, charitable non-for-profit worker as a pastor of this church. I have never found myself in a situation where I could say that the authorities and the governing authorities above me have been fair in their rulings. I've never found that to be true. Why are we surprised when human nature exposes itself in the authority structure? When give you a quick example. When I was a a real estate developer in Chicago, I was doing really one one of my first big deals. I was young. I was in my 30s. And I I took a theater that was in downtown Chicago. We were redeveloping it. It was part of a theater district that the city of Chicago wanted to see redeveloped. They lent money towards the project. I was overseeing the project. And we opened a theater called uh, the Cadillac Palace Theater in Chicago. And in the process of reopening that theater, it was 80 years old, we had to work with the city and their inspectors to upgrade all of the mechanicals and the electrical systems. It was all done according to what they told us we must do. And while I was doing the theater, we were also negotiating with Disney. And, And we had negotiated with Disney to take on several of their shows, Beauty and the Beast, Aida, because we wanted the big show when it came to town, which was Lion King. So we performed for several years. We got the theater renovated. Lion King finally came to town. It was going to sit there for four months. Advanced sales, of, uh, ticket sales were like a million a week. We were two months into a, or two weeks into a four-month run, and an electrical inspector walked into my theater and shut it down for violations that had already been approved by the city. 
I've got obligations to Disney. They've pre-sold tickets. Like, what in the world am I going to do? The phone rings. It's the mayor's wife. The electrical inspector is still in the building. And she says, hey, listen, on behalf of a charity that I chair, I'm on their board. We're looking at a date about a month from now. We're wondering if you would be willing to donate some tickets to our charity. I said, sure. How many tickets would you like? All of them. 2,300. I would love to donate 2,300 tickets to you. Is there anything else you need? Yes, would you be able to cater a dinner for 2,300 people? Do you want chicken or steak? <laughs> we made a donation, and, and this, is, this is crazy. You'll never believe this. Guess what happened with the electrical inspector? He signed off. Like, like does that surprise you? Do, do, have you never worked in Chicago? Like, 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 this is real world reality that sometimes the authorities that are placed over you are not going to be fair and they're going to oppress. It's in our best interest. Let me give you a third. And I think this is important as well. It says, look, it says, be obedient, be ready for every good work, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Here's a third to be combative undermines the gospel. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are constantly making an argument that we have submitted our lives to an authority that is Jesus Christ. He is God. He cannot be seen. He is unknown by most of the world. And when we refuse to submit to the physical authorities that can be observed, that are placed there by God, the world is going to struggle to believe that we leave lives of submission to things that they cannot see. To be combative undermines the gospel. How will anybody believe that we're living lives in submission to God and his words if we fail to be submissive to human authorities? It's interesting. One of the things that's been hard as I've prepared to teach in the book of Titus is the language in Titus is really harsh. So how do you take the harsh language throughout the book of Titus? Let me give you some examples. Titus 1.11, it says, they, Titus is instructed, they must be silenced. That word silence means muzzled. Verse 13, rebuke them sharply. Verse 16 of chapter 1, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. 2.15, exhort and rebuke with all authority. At the end of chapter 3, if a person stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. That's like some pretty hard language, isn't it? As you got to navigate your way through. You might find it interesting that all of those descriptions and all of that counsel has nothing to do with our culture. All of that is directed at people within the church that are being divisive because they've been uns. Or insubordinate, they haven't followed the rules. Okay? Here's a second point be different, be gracious, be different. I love verse three. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So Paul has just said, hey, church is you engage with a culture that can be hostile, 
you're to be gracious. We're also called to be different. And what he says is the culture is going to respond with malice, with hatred, hating one another. And, and what Paul does here, I think, is, is, is so wonderful. And I don't want you to miss the point of it. Look at, look at what he says at the beginning of verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish. He doesn't say for, because they're foolish. He doesn't say because, Titus, you used to be foolish. He grabs all of us. He says, for we were once foolish. And the point that he's making here is be different. We don't have to respond with hostility to a hostile culture. As a matter of fact, we need to understand that without grace, that's what we were. It's not us versus them. It's not those terrible people in us. And that mindset has no place in the gospel. When people have differing viewpoints, when they accept differing lifestyles and what we would include in a biblical worldview, they do not become the enemy. They become the target of the gospel and compassion. And we have to understand that because we were once them. Apart from grace, we be they. I'm butchering the English language, but you get what I mean, right? We were them. And Paul is saying, make no distinction. We don't have to approve their choices. We don't have to approve their lifestyle. But man, we better have compassion towards them because the truth is without grace, without the cross, without Christ moving on our behalf, we were on the same road that they were. Headed towards the same dead ends. Headed towards the same lack of satisfaction, disappointment, and disillusionment that the world systems always lead to. We're called to be different. He says, they're foolish, they're disobedient, they're led astray. And he says, we used to possess no wisdom. We resisted God's wisdom. We followed other people's lies. And when we realize that we were just like them apart from grace, that should solicit from us compassion, not hatred. Okay, um, what is the best thing you can do for somebody who's lost in darkness? Be a light. How is Paul telling us to be a light? He's saying, be gracious, be different. And here's the third, be grateful. Verse four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us and rich, us richly through Jesus Christ, our savior, so that the being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, be grateful. In that sentence that begins in verse four and runs all the way through seven, that's called a run-on sentence. There's a lot in there. Let, let me just point out a couple things very quickly. He saved us. If we understand that he saved us, we have to acknowledge that we needed to be saved, that there was something in us that couldn't save ourselves. This verse talks about what's in the heart of God, not in our hearts as it relates to salvation. And it is him that moves on our behalf. We never move towards him. Good works can be just as damning as bad works if we put our confidence in our good works that they'll save us. Salvation is solely of God. It is completely a part of any works of righteousness that we have done. And let me just point out one other thing because I think it's cool in the text. 
He talks about the regeneration that we experience by the Holy Spirit. That word regeneration is only used twice in the New Testament, and it is a technical term that was very common with Stoic philosophers. In Greek philosophers, there were two primary groups. There were the Epicureans. They were all about pleasure and having fun. And there were Stoics. They were downers. But they dominated the philosophy. If if the Epicureans are throwing a party and the Stoics are, go to the Epicurean party. It's way better. Okay? But the Stoics believed that what would happen is the world would start it would basically end up going nowhere for no purpose and it would wind down, wind down, wind down and everything would get so bad that eventually the world would be regenerated. It would have a regenerous through fire and that it would start all over again and then go for no meaningful purpose and regenerate again and again. They believe the universe always recreated itself. And it's interesting, Jesus takes that technical term and in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, truly, Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, in the regeneration, in the regeneration, in the regenesis, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is saying there's not a series of restarts of the world. There's not a series of recreations. The recreation, the regenesis of this world starts when I come back and I will sit on my throne. But Paul takes what Jesus says here in Titus and he says, that new thing that Jesus has promised, there's been a deposit, there's been a down payment, it's been placed inside of you right now through the regenesis that the Holy Spirit is bringing as he transforms you. You have evidence of what's going to happen later when God redeems all of creation because you can see how the gospel is changing you now. And he goes on and says that we have heir, that we have become heirs and we have hope in eternal life. And I just want you to think for a minute from the culture's perspective, when the gospel says that we need a savior, that we have a hope, and that we are being transformed by a power that's outside ourselves, if you don't accept the gospel and believe in Jesus as a savior, that becomes pretty offensive language to a world that is lost. It's interesting. Verse 8 says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. A couple things from this passage. I found it interesting that it says these things are excellent and profitable for people, these things being the good works. But in the run-on sentence that just preceded it, he said, your good works and works of righteousness accomplish nothing. So so here he's saying your good works are profitable. Well, for who? And I think your good works are profitable in response to the gospel out of gratitude, not to earn our salvation when we choose to follow our Savior and to do the things that he tells us to do. I think that keeps us safe from a lot of the consequences of sin. We always say choose to sin, choose to suffer. So I think it has some personal benefit, but I think the thrust of what Paul is instructing Titus here as he says, this is profitable for people. That that when we choose to live and, and model out the good works as a result of our salvation, that word people is anthropos. It's talking about all of mankind. And what it's suggesting is that as followers of Jesus Christ, when we live out the gospel and our lights in the community, God is using that to attract people to himself. He allows us to be a participant in the work that he is doing and changing, transforming, and choosing lives. 
when he says at the beginning of verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Most scholars believe that what he has just stated in verses 4 through 7 is actually from a hymn or from some creed that was repeated. It's not normal language. They say that's probably from a hymn, and he's just given that to Titus, and then he says, these things are trustworthy. But I want to apply this to our current context and our current situation. He says, avoid this, be this. Look at what it says in the following verses. It says this, but avoid foolish controversies, verse 9, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. The last point of this message would be this, it's just don't get sucked into the chaos. So there's battles that are worthless and there's things that are worthwhile. And he's saying, when do you stand? How far can you be pushed? Where is it important that we resist authorities that are placed above us? And after laying out the tenets of the gospel, he says, these things are trustworthy and you insist on these things. Okay. gospel and not our personal liberties and rights. All battles are not the same. All battles are not of equal importance. So I'm sitting at the baseball game on Wednesday. It's the second inning. The White Sox have a star left fielder. He's one of our key players. Um, he's a wonderful hitter. He's an awful outfielder. And a ball is hit over his head, out to left field. He goes back onto the warning track. He goes against the wall. He jumps for the ball awkwardly. He hangs himself by his armpit on the top of the fence, crumbles to the ground. And the next day we find out he's torn his pectoral tendon. That just sounds ouch, doesn't it? And he's out for the season. because he jumped to catch a ball that was uncatchable in a spring training game that doesn't matter. He eliminated himself for the fight because he fought for something that was completely 
unimportant. And church, I would pick your battles carefully because they're coming. When, when you stand, stand for the gospel, not personal freedoms, not personal liberties. There's so many things that we can sacrifice throughout the New Testament. You constantly see the church laying down personal liberties and rights for the sake of the gospel. My best example of that is this guy named Jesus who in Philippians 2 emptied himself, took on the form of humanity, didn't grasp his godliness as something to be clinged to, but became like us to the point of going to the cross to bearing God's wrath for our sin. That's our example. That's our Lord. We're going to follow in his footsteps. And no matter what, we'll stand for the gospel. Father, thank you for clear teaching and clear instruction. I would just pray for the boldness to do what you've asked us to do. Father, my heart is heavy for what I see going on in our world and in our culture and um, remind me, remind my heart that you are on the throne, that you are in control. Father, we trust you in all things. You are good. You are working all things together in your infinite wisdom and purposes for our good and for your glory. And our hearts cry out, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father, teach us to trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.